your seat. Good. I didn't. Ar I usually arrange this. I didn't. Can somebody in the front row give me that up? <laughs> I've usually got a helper, and I didn't have one tonight. Thank you. Well, it's great to see you. So many people here to, uh, this evening, and. When I arrived earlier on, it was great to see all the people involved in the activities inside and out. And this is our uh, Christmas tradition here at Gateway. We normally have our uh, carol and candle service. I've got my candle here. I hope you've got a candle. If you haven't, we'll make sure you get one before the end because in a little while, we're going to be singing another couple of traditional Christmas carols. We're going to be lighting our candles. This is one of my favorite services of the year, actually. And um, I have the opportunity now to just share with you for a short period of time something of the Christmas message, of the Christmas story. I don't really have a teaching or a message or a sermon as such. If you were here yesterday, that was when I did my Christmas sermon, okay, to explain the meaning of Christmas and how it can impact our life. What I want to do this evening is I want to just tell the Christmas story, not read it out. We've had some verses of Scripture read at the beginning of the service. I just want to tell the story, and I know you're thinking, yeah, we know the story, we hear it every year. They even tell it on Charlie Brown. I mean, like, everybody knows the story. So, But here's one of the problems with the Christmas story. Although it is very familiar to us, it is also quite hard for us to relate to it. Because the Christmas story comes from a culture that is very different to our culture from a geographical location in the world which is very different to our geographical location, from a language group and a religious community that is very different from ours. And if that wasn't confusing enough, it took place 2,000 years ago in history. So everything about the story makes it seem alien to us or perhaps a little bit otherworldly. And because of that, it's kind of difficult for you to, like you can listen to the story, it can warm your heart, it can sound nice, it can even fill you with gratitude towards God for sending a savior, but how it relates to your life today can seem a difficult thing because we are familiar with our culture and we're familiar with our customs, but we're not so familiar with theirs. And what I want to do this evening is I want to tell you the Christmas story, but I want to share some things that the Bible doesn't tell us. Some things from the culture and the customs of the time that the Bible doesn't actually list those things because it didn't need to because everybody in those days knew it, but we don't know it. Let me give you an example. Imagine in 2,000 years' time, <clears throat> some archaeologist was dig is digging up this, this piece of land where there's a rumor that there was once a city called Edmonton, but it's now buried under whatever it's been buried under. And so the archaeologists, 2,000 years' time, are excavating this. And they come across your cell phone. And they don't really know what it is, but they manage, it's still got a little bit of charge in it. <laughs> and they manage to get it on for just a second, and they see a text that you sent to me. And the text reads, we need to go to the Apple store first, and then after that, I want to go to Ghost Armor. That's what it says. Why did you not give any explanation for archaeologists in 2,000 years' time about what you were talking about? Why did you not do that? 
Because in 2,000 years' time, the archaeologists are going to think that we were going to a fruit shop that sold nothing but apples. Well, they're going to the apple store. They must have had apple stores in those days. Why did they not just have like a produce store or a fruit store? Why did they have a store that just sold apples? And they really believed in ghosts. Not only did they believe in ghosts, but they, they thought they had to wear special protection because look, they were going to buy ghost armor after that. Now to us, it's perfectly normal. It, I would read that text and think, she dropped her phone, cracked the screen. We're going to the Apple store to get the screen fixed. And then to save that happening again, we're going out to the little booth, the little ghost armor booth in the middle of the mall, and we're going to get that special protective stuff put on her phone. Nobody needed to explain that to me because I live in this culture. I have a stupid Apple phone. I know how often they break. I know all of that stuff. But in 2,000 years' time, people would not have a clue what we were talking about and would completely misunderstand it and would imagine that we lived in some exotic culture where there were, there were shops that sold one product, apples, and also you had to wear special armor to protect yourself from ghosts. Now, if we look at the Christmas story and we look at the culture, a little bit of the culture, what we're going to see tonight is the people in the Christmas story were absolutely normal human beings like you and me. They were not saints. They didn't have halos. When they walked around, there wasn't an angel walking behind them playing a harp to announce their arrival. The animals didn't back off and bow as Mary and Joseph. They were normal people like you and me. Going to Bethlehem on a donkey was no different than going to Calgary in your car. I'm going to show you a little video clip. Just line up that video and we're going to play it. One December night, over 2,000 years ago, a shining star illuminated a gathering of kings, shepherds, angels, and animals round a baby in a stable. T'was the nativity, and it marked the end of a journey that began on a donkey's back. Whoa, hold up there, Jeeves. Yeah. I beg your pardon? Your nativity. That's not exactly how it happened. Here, look, let's start with that donkey. Neither of the gospel stories mentions Mary traveling by donkey. And given the 60 miles of rough terrain they traveled, it's more likely they used a wagon. <laughs> Minor details. But then the innkeeper informs uh, them there's no room... Again, the Bible doesn't actually mention an innkeeper. And in the Greek, the word inn refers to an upper room in a house, not an actual motel. Oh, blast. Look, wherever it was, there was no room. So, Mary and Joseph were sent to the stable. Uh, no stable. <sighs> Not in the Bible either. Now you're catching on. And in those days, most animals were typically kept in a cave. A cave? Yuppers. So it could have been that instead of a stable, the Bible doesn't really say. And the Star of Bethlehem? Duh, that's biblical. Well, we're actually right for once. It's a Christmas miracle. Okay, so now came the shepherds and the three kings. No kings. Three kings is from the song. The Bible says magi, which means wise men. Three wise men? That works. Well, not so fast. While the Bible does mention three gifts, it doesn't specify the number of wise men that brought them. You mean there could have been more? Oh yeah, a whole posse even. With a crowd like that, it's a miracle the baby Jesus never cried. What, no crying he makes? That's just a lyric from Away in a Manger, not actual scripture. <laughs> well, of course he was crying. You just added a whole crowd of strange men. Eh, yes and no. There may have been many wise men, but they weren't there that night. You see? Okay, that's enough. Except for the blooming star of Bethlehem, you've just dismantled the most inspiring image of Christian tradition. So what's your point? Point? Well, I guess it's this. 
Even when all of the man-made traditions are stripped away, the eternal truths still remain. Whether they traveled by donkey or wagon, God brought them safely to the birthplace that was prophesied. Whether born in a stable or cave, God provided shelter in a strange new land. Whether there were three kings, three wise men, or many, God called the elect to bear witness and testimony to the birth of Emmanuel. So whether your manger looks like this, or like this, the one thing that remains unchanged is this. A baby boy, born of a virgin, this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. Bless you, sir. I'll never look at the miracle of December 25th the same way again. December 25th? Oh, I almost forgot. Stop that. Music. So as you can see, the Christmas story in the Bible is quite a little bit different to the Christmas story on your Christmas card picture. And that's because all of the events of that we celebrate at, Christ, at Christmas time did not happen in one day. They took more than two years to happen. Let me give you an example. When you become pregnant, it usually takes nine months before the baby's born. But in the Christmas story, we celebrate the angel coming to Mary, and in the next minute, she's in Bethlehem, and the baby's in a manger. So there's, there's a whole long period of time. So let's just go through the story. First of all, let's start with Joseph and Mary. In the Bible, it says that Joseph and Mary were, in our English Bible, it often says they were engaged to be married. Now, their customs were slightly different than ours. They didn't actually have engagement, uh, engagements in those cultures. And by the way, here's something really interesting. The culture that they came from, the Jewish culture, which was in the ancient Near East, was, the, was a culture in which they spoke every day, they spoke a language called Aramaic. And all of the little nations around them also spoke that same language and shared in a similar culture. And even today, in certain parts of the Middle East, today there are still communities that speak Aramaic. There are churches which all their services are in Aramaic. They can trace their history right back to the early Christians they still use the same figures of speech that the people in the Bible did. They still have the same culture, and they still do a lot of the same things that we see in this story today. And so, what they had was they had something called betrothal. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now, in those days and in that culture, what they practiced was arranged marriage. They didn't, they didn't have any dating. People did not date. Um, nobody ever, you, you never had to work up the guts to ask somebody out on a date, and you never had to work up the polite way to decline the date if you didn't want to go on it. It was not a thing. So there was no, there, nobody went on dates, there were no dates, um, there were arranged marriages, but there was not forced marriages. It wasn't forced marriage in that culture. The parents would arrange it, but the people being married had to be agreeable to it. And one of the things that they did was they were expected, first of all, how do you feel about it? Or, you know, the parents would say to the daughter, we are thinking of talking to such and such a person about his son. He would be a good match for you. How do you feel about it? And if the daughter felt okay about it, if the son felt okay about it, they were then expected to go and pray about it and see how they felt inside, whether they felt that this was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And, um, and so, and if it was the right thing to do, then the man, Joseph, would have paid Mary's parents a dowry, and at that point, she was betrothed to him. Still had never been on a date, never even been kissed, okay? So that was the culture at that time. And then the next thing we see is we see Mary praying. Well, we see, we see Mary having a vision of an angel coming to her. 
And the angel comes in, and in the English, the angel says, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's probably the way you've heard it. Um, in, uh, in Aramaic, the angel would have come in and said, Shalamlek Marium. Isn't that a better language than ours? Doesn't that sound better? Hail Mary, Shalamlek. Doesn't that sound nicer? If something scary was about to appear to me, I would rather it was Shalamlek than hail. So, and you know what that means? It means peace to you. It's a bit like shalom, but it means something more than that. It means I am at peace with you. The angel came to Mary and said, I am at peace with you. Do you know very often people have an image of God as if God is at war with us, as if God is angry at us, as if God is fed up with us, as if God could just snuff us out at any moment? You know, very often we are at war with God. We don't want to go God's way and we want to go our way, but God is not at war with us. If God was to appear to you, he would say, I am at peace with you. God is a God who brings peace wherever he goes. And the angel came to Mary and said, I am at peace with you. It would be kind of similar to, you know, like a science fiction movie where an alien comes down and what does he say when he comes out his flying saucer? I come in peace. That was basically what the angel was saying. I come in peace. He says, I come in peace. I am at peace with you. Hail Mary, full of grace. Full of grace. To be full. In, in the ancient Near East, if you said a woman was full of grace, do you know what that meant? She was pregnant. She was pregnant. It was a figure of speech that they used. Or if they said the grace or the favor of the Lord was with a woman, it meant that she was pregnant or she was about to get pregnant soon. They were believing for a pregnancy. They were praying for one. And it said that Mary was taken aback by this. Now, this whole story, like I said, sounds very otherworldly to us because we don't do the things that Mary did in our culture. If you think you're pregnant, you go to London Drugs, you buy a pregnancy test. If it's positive, you make an appointment to go to the hospital to get an ultrasound to find out if it's a boy or a girl, and then you decide on what name you want. Do you want to know what they did in the ancient Near East and in many of the ancient Christian Aramaic-speaking communities in the Middle East today, what they do? If when a woman was, when she was betrothed and she was about to get married, or sometimes after she was married, they would go, and they still do, they would go to a holy place, to a shrine or a temple or some kind of holy place, and they would pray, and they would ask God to bless the marriage with children, and they would expect, they would expect to receive a message usually in a dream, but perhaps in some other way, maybe as they pray and meditate in some kind of spiritual vision, or maybe some holy man who worked in the temple would come out and say something, but very often they expected, and they still do today, they expect to have a dream in which an angel or a patron saint or even a departed loved one, like their dead grandmother or something like that, will appear to them in the dream and will tell them if they're going to have a child and will tell them whether it's a boy or a girl and will tell them the child's name. And they still practice that today. They still pray. They go to the spiritual ultrasound to find out, am I pregnant? Is it a boy? Is it a girl? What name should I give to this child? And they'll pray, and then they will expect to receive a message in a dream or in some other way in answer to that. When we hear the story of Mary and an angel speaking to her, all of a sudden, it, it, to us, it's in the realm of saints and prophets and holy people and ancient scriptures. But to the people in the ancient Near East then, and even today, this was normal, everyday life. 
God is not interested in holy Joes and do-gooders. God is interested in sinners like you and me. He's interested in normal human beings. The God of all creation wants to be involved in the lives of everyday normal people like us, not just certain holy people in certain places. And so she prayed. So she's saying, right, so hold on a minute, like Joseph and I haven't got together yet. Well, like, can you, she says, can you give me a little bit more explanation about how this is all going to happen? And then the angel says, the spirit of the most high will come upon you. The power of God will overshadow you. Do you know, God's spirit, God's presence, God's power is everywhere all the time. It's invisible everywhere within us, all around us. The Bible says God's Spirit is like the wind or the air. We can't see it, but but if it blows in the trees, we can see the result of what it does, but we can't see the wind. Yet that invisible, life-giving presence is everywhere. And when, when the angel said to Mary that the power of God's Spirit would come upon her, I want you to think of this. I come from the nation of Scotland where the first animal was to ever to be cloned was cloned, Dolly the sheep. How many of you remember Dolly the sheep, the first animal to be cloned? Do you know how they cloned Dolly the sheep? Do you know that Dolly the sheep did not have a human father? They took an egg from the mother and they fired an electric current through it to begin the process of cell division. And that was how Dolly the sheep was conceived. You know, quite often here in Gateway, we have healing services where we invite people who want prayer for healing to come forward and to receive prayer and the laying on of hands. And very often people say that when they receive prayer for healing, they feel something warm like an electric current go through them. Well, that was what happened to Mary. She's praying, and she's asking for guidance, and she's asking for a blessing upon her marriage, and she's being told, you're going to become pregnant. In fact, it's going to happen like even before you and Joseph get together, because here's a little electric current all the way through your body. And she conceived. And then he said, the angel, the message was, it will be a boy. And here's his name. You shall call him Jesus in English. They didn't speak English, though. They spoke Aramaic. And it's Ishwa. Sometimes people say Yeshua today, but that's not how you pronounce it. The Y and the E are E. Ishwa. His name will be Ishwa. So when when Mary got this message, the only surprising thing was, was that electric current. Everything else was normal. Praying and asking for a blessing upon your marriage, praying and asking that your marriage would be blessed with children, receiving some kind of dream or, or message or, that will tell you that you're going to have a child and whether it will be a boy or a girl and what its name will be. When the first people reading the Christmas story, it would have sounded as normal as this. Do you hear what happened to Mary and Joe next door? No, what happened to them? Well, she, she had, had this weird dream, and she wondered if it was true or not, so she went to the doctor, and it sent her for an ultrasound, and lo and behold, the dream's true. It was as normal as that. What we do every day, they were doing every day. Now, the only thing that wasn't normal is, it ain't really that normal to, for virgins to have children, even if Dolly the sheep could do it. It took intervention for Dolly the sheep to do it, and it took divine intervention. And Joseph, all of a sudden, becomes concerned. And so in the story, Joseph prays. And Joseph prays, and, and this, is, this is like an unusual thing, because in that culture, it would normally be the woman who would pray about the marriage and about the children and so on. And the men would only get involved in praying if there was a problem. Okay, there's a problem, there's a bit of a panic, so Joseph gets to pray as well. And he prays, and that night he too has a dream. 
in which he receives a message. People, can I encourage you something? If the story of Christmas tells us anything, it tells us do not dismiss your dreams. Because sometimes the only time that God gets to talk to you is when you shut up and you're fast asleep. So only... You're trying to do everything in your own power while you're awake, and God's like, just wait till they're asleep and we'll kind of like slip into their dream, plant a little idea there, and slip back out again. And so Joseph all of a sudden receives the confirmation that everything is okay. The next part of the story is they go on their journey. They go on their journey from Nazareth, which is in a region called Galilee, to Bethlehem, which is in a region called Judea. And the, dis- it wasn't this, the distance wasn't this great, but the only way I can describe it is this. Right, you know how Alaska, Alaska is part of the United States, and yet it's separate from the rest of the United States? If you're in Alaska, you're in the United States. But then if you want to drive to Washington, you're going to have to leave the United States and drive through Canada and then leave Canada and drive back into the United States. That's what the world was like in their area. They had a region called Galilee, which was part of the nation of Israel. Then they had a region called Samaria, which would be Canada in our illustration, which was a different nation. And then they had a region called Judea, which was also Israel. They had to leave Israel, drive through a foreign land, well, drive through, trot through, whatever, walk through a foreign land and get back into Israel again. And so the reason they had to do that was because everyone had a family home where their family came from. And it was, time, it was census time where they had to register for the tax. And we even know when this was. It says it was when Quirinius was governor of Judea. It also tells us it was when Caesar Augustus was ruling the Roman Empire. It also tells us that that it was when King Herod was king in Judea as well. And so when we piece all this together, we know that this whole Christmas story happened between 5 BC and 3 BC, okay? We know the exact time in history. And so they had to travel, so they traveled from Nazareth, in the village that they came from in Galilee, through the country of Samaria, then into Judea, down to the capital city of Judea, which was Jerusalem, and then a little bit further on to the town of Bethlehem, which is called David's town because King David from hundreds of years previously came from there, and Mary and Joseph were descended from King David and had to go back to that town to register for their taxis. Today there would be a sign on the road as you're driving past saying, log on online to register for your census. Do you remember that the other year? So it was a normal everyday thing that they had to do. Then there's this story about they had to lay the baby in a manger because there was no room in the inn. And in our mind, we picture the Holiday Inn or some kind of motel or hotel. And like it it explained here, it wasn't really like that. Let me tell you something that's really interesting. Um, In Jesus' day, amongst the Jewish people, there were a number of different mm, denominations, I suppose you could call it. You know how In Christianity, you've got different churches. You've got the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Baptist Church, the Pentecostal Church, and then the best church in Edmonton as well. (laughs) You've got all of those churches, right? Well, in Jesus' day, there was different Jewish groups, and there was three main Jewish groups. There were the Pharisees. They were kind of like the hardcore fundamentalists that stood saying, turn or burn, you know, that kind of stuff. And then there were the Sadducees. They were the ones that loved all the big robes and all the liturgy and the incense and all the fancy stuff in the temple. Then there was another group called the Essenes. They're the only group that Jesus never criticizes. 
I wonder why that was. Well, we know that the Essenes, they were the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Essenes had had managed to calculate by looking at ancient prophecies and also looking at the constellations in the sky, they had managed to calculate that they were living in the general time that the Messiah was going to be born. Amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, scholars have even found a scroll in which they detail that. The scholars have given that scroll a nickname. They call it the Messiah's Horoscope. It's not really a horoscope. It's just a name they've given it. But it shows how the Essenes knew. They were waiting. They knew the Messiah was about to be born. Here's another thing. Up in Nazareth, where Jesus' uh, family came from, the Essenes were the big deal. They were the most popular church in town. Everybody loved them. And so the chances are that Jesus' family were part of the Essenes. Certainly Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, was. Now here's what we know. In the town of Bethlehem, there was an Essene guest house there. And it would have been a normal house with a little kind of apartment on the roof. In the normal house would be where the family lived, the Essene family lived, probably the rabbi or something like that. And they had a little apartment on the roof for any visiting Essenes. So that was probably the place where Mary and Joseph stopped off and they found out, so like they were part of the club. It was like you driving to, to Whistler in the middle of winter and the snow's blown in the Rocky Mountains and you think we need to stop, we need to stop someplace. And then you think, I've got my AMA card here. I can, that hotel will give us a discount. I'm a member of the club. And then you get there and they tell you we're fully booked. That was what happened. They went to their clubhouse to find out and they couldn't get in. And then so we know that the baby was laid in a manger. This is a manger here. A manger is just a food trough, a wooden food trough for animals. So we don't know whether it was a cave, whether it was an actual built stable. If it was a cave, they would have built wooden structures inside it, and in the earliest Christian traditions, in the earliest paintings, the stable was in a cave. And the, the symbolism was that the cave symbolized the womb of the earth, you know, like Mother Earth and Father God, and that that was how Jesus came forth. And so in that stable, the baby is born. And the baby is born there laid in the manger, probably the most well-known part of the story is Mary and Joseph with the baby in a manger, and then the shepherds come. Now, I said it was common, it was expected, it was part of the culture to just believe that when you pray about an important thing in your life that you're going to get a dream that gives you an answer. That was common. But what wasn't common was if you were a shepherd and you were out in the fields, that all of a sudden angels popped up there too. I mean, that was uncommon, okay? It doesn't happen every day, right? And the angels, the, sorry, the shepherds are in the field and angels come to them and appear to them and tell the shepherds, go down there. Go and you will see that the Messiah has been born. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. Christ just means Messiah. And they go there and they see this Savior has been born. Now, far away in another country, there's something else going on. There's a group of people called Magi. Magi, I know like it said in that, that video we watched, they weren't kings. I know this song says, we three kings of Orientar. But they weren't kings, they were magi. I hate to tell you what they were, especially if you were brought up in a strict religious upbringing, you might be shocked. They were astrologers, stargazers. And the magi were over here in, in the areas that we would know as Persia, Parthia, Babylonia. 
Iraq, Iran, that kind of part of the world. And they were members of a religion called Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism did not worship any idols, and they believed there was one creator, God. And the founder of that religion, Zoroaster, had predicted that one day in another country, a savior would be born, and that his priests needed to search for that savior and go and find the savior. So they were already aware of this. And before they had telescopes, how they would study the stars is they would build a house, a building, and they would cut a round hole in the roof. And then below it, they would make a pool of very still water. And they would gaze into the pool of still water where they would see the reflection of the stars. And let me tell you what they saw. I won't go into too many details. It would take too long. If you want the details, go on to Bethlehemstar.net. Bethlehemstar.net, and you can see the whole thing. And we know exactly what they saw because we have the computer programs today to run it. You can go to a planetarium, like the one in, in the Telus world of science, and they can show you what the night sky is like above Edmonton. And then they can show you what it's like in other parts of the world. They can move it and show you what the night sky is like above Bethlehem. And then by the computer program, they can rotate it back in time and we can see what the night sky was like over the Middle East between 5 BC and 3 BC, the time when Herod was king, Quirinius was governor, and uh, Augustus was Caesar. In that part of the world, what happened in the night sky? Well, first of all, the first thing that happened was they looked at the night sky and they saw that a miracle was going to happen. A virgin was going to conceive. And how did they see that? They saw the constellation Virgo. And they saw the sun come into the constellation Virgo and make her pregnant. And then, nine months later, as they were continuing to follow all the movement of the stars, they saw three planets aligning together to form a very bright star. And those three planets symbolized three things. A king, a newborn king, the son of God, and the savior of all mankind. And when those three planets aligned, they aligned together in the constellation Leo, the lion. And they knew that Leo, the lion, was the symbol of the tribe of Judah. If you know anything about the Bible, you know it talks about the lion of Judah. And the tribe of Judah had the lion on their banner. And that was in the area of Judea. And the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. And so they knew a virgin has conceived. We need to follow this for months and find out. Now we know what region the baby's been born in, in Judea. And they began to leave and they went all the way there. And they arrive at the palace of King Herod in Jerusalem, because surely if a newborn king has just arrived, it's going to be in the king's palace. But Herod doesn't know anything about it. He's upset about it. He calls for the priests to bring him the scrolls to show him where the Messiah would be born. And the ancient prophecy said in Bethlehem, just down the road from Jerusalem, so the wise men, the magi, they then leave Herod and they go on down to Jerusalem. And by the way, three of the stars from Orion's belt also are in that, uh, in that constellation. And those three stars are called the three kings. The three kings weren't the men, they were the magi. The three kings were the stars that they followed. And so they arrive there and they get to Bethlehem and oh, here's something interesting. 
They're not in a stable. It says they're in a house. And it no longer says it's a baby. It says it's a young child. So they arrived sometime later. Jesus could have been two years old. How do we know that? Because King Herod wanted all the children aged two and under killed, and he chose that date based on the time the Magi had seen the first conjunction of stars. So that was when, at least when the conception took place. And so the Magi see, they give gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and um, they bring that. And here's the thing. You know the rest of the story? Mary and Joseph leave. They go to Egypt with the baby. Once Herod dies, they come back, and they bring Jesus up in Nazareth. But here's the thing. Every single one of the people in this story that we have just looked at were real normal, flesh and blood human beings like you and me. They had good days and they had bad days. I think Herod had more bad days than good days because he was a, by history, he was a very angry and nasty person. But they, they were normal people. They had to deal with relationships. They had to deal with money. They had to deal with the weather. They had to cook their meals. They were people like you and me. The God of all the universe is not interested only in saints and sages. God is interested in ordinary people like you and me. And in the difficulties that we go through and in the life that we live, and in the confusion that we have, he brings us guidance. And in the turmoil we have, he brings us peace. And the mistakes that we make, he brings us forgiveness. And every single one of these people had the choice of how they were going to respond to the Savior. And every single person in this room tonight has the choice. You've got the choice of how you are going to respond to the Savior. Let's just put up that list. How will you respond to Jesus? Will you respond like Mary who believed and said, she, she's, when she got this message that she was going to have a child, she said, let it be unto me, let it happen to me, just as you have said. I believe it, I accept it, I receive it. You know, God had a plan for Mary's life, and she said, let it happen. And God's got a plan for every one of our lives. He's got a plan for your life. Now, you can be over here doing your own thing, or you can come to God and say, let your will be done in my life. You've got a plan for my life, and I'm sure it's far better than anything I could dream up. I'm going to believe. And the first part of that plan is by believing in the Savior, Jesus Christ. When Christ comes into our life, that is the beginning of us going down the right path for our life. Or what about Joseph who doubted? Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. I'll give him his due at least when he had his dream. He gave up his doubts. And you may have come in here with doubts about whether this whole Christmas story is true or not, and whether God is real, and whether Jesus really is the Savior, and whether any of this makes any difference to you. But just like Joseph received a message tonight, now that was through an angel in his dreams, just make me the angel of your dreams tonight, okay? <laughs> and through me, God has given you a message and saying, Will you put your faith in Christ? Christ was formed in Mary. Will you open your life like Mary and let Christ come into your life and set you on the right path? Will you doubt like Joseph? Or will you receive this message and like Joseph, discard your doubts? Or what about the guest house that had no room? Maybe you've got no room. I'm too busy to go to church. I'm running a business. I'm a single parent. I'm doing a college, a course at university. I've got, I've got too many things going on in my life. Do you know what? You'll have all that stuff going on in your life next year and the year after that. And then once you're through with all that, there'll be a whole load of other meaningless junk coming into your life to take up all of your time. One day, 
one day or other, you are going to have to come face to face with the fact that there is a God, that he sent his son Jesus to be the Savior. And you know, why not make today? Don't wait until you've, you've been so busy, there's been no room for God in your life. You've been so busy that you end up giving yourself a heart attack, working yourself into an early death, and then see him, and it's like, oops. How about make today the day that there's room in your life for Jesus Christ to come, to forgive you, to change you, to give you peace and guidance, and to set your life on a new path? And then, or what about like Herod who wants, you know, it always amazes me. I was watching a video um, on YouTube recently, and it was a, a female comedian, quite a famous and well-known one, and she went on the angriest, most hate-filled rant about Jesus I've ever heard. And then she says, and the first time they came, they, they, they killed him, and if he comes back again, I would, I would kill him again, she said. And you're like, how could someone so pure and innocent provoke so much hatred and anger in someone? Hey, if God, if Jesus, if Christmas, if salvation, if forgiveness of sins, if Christianity, if the gift of eternal life riles you up inside, that doesn't say anything about God. It just says a whole lot about you. And it lets, it lets you know that, my goodness, you really, really need God's help. Herod really needed God's help and refused it. Or will you be like the shepherds who come and worship him and the wise men who give the most valuable thing you've got as a, a gift, your gift to Jesus? You know, I'm going to just lead us in prayer in just a moment or two. If you were here yesterday at our Christmas party service yesterday, you will, you will know that at the end of the service we prayed a prayer together. And it's a prayer of inviting Christ into your lives. We're going to pray that same prayer tonight. So I would like to encourage everyone to stand. We're going to put the prayer up on the, the screen. And I, before we pray the prayer, I want you to ask yourself a question. Ask your own self, your own heart. Let your head talk to your heart just now. Because sometimes your head, our heads can have a whole load of reasons for why I shouldn't do this and I've not got time for that and this isn't important. But sometimes when you ask your heart, your heart says, yes, follow your heart. Yes, open up to God. Yes, you've messed up open up to his forgiveness. Yes, you've got doubts. Open up and let his love come in. Let all the confusion leave. We're going to pray this prayer. But let me <clears throat> give you the question now. How will I respond to Jesus Christ? Slam the door, run away, bury my head in the sand pretend everything's okay look at the my watch and wish this guy would hurry up how will you respond or will you say I need a saviour I've got doubts I want to know God I want my sins forgiven I want inner peace I want the absolute assurance that God loves me and is with me through this life and will welcome me into heaven when I die. I want that. This prayer is the prayer of opening the door of our life. And maybe you have opened the door of your life to Jesus. I have. But I'm saying this prayer again because I want every single area of my life flooded with his love cleaned out with his forgiveness and lit up by the light of Jesus Christ so let's say this prayer together are we ready? 
Let's look at it and let's say it together. Father God, today I give my life to you, my past, present, and future. I believe that you sent Jesus Christ and that he died on the cross for my sins. He rose again from the dead and is alive. I ask you to forgive me, cleanse me, and change me. May your spirit fill me now. From now on, I am a follower of Christ. Help me to live for you all of my days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's give God a thanks. Come on. Thank you, Lord. Remain, let's just remain standing. And our ushers are going to be coming down the front. Now, I want you to take your candle out if you have it. Now, this isn't just a quaint thing to do. What's going to happen is I am going to light the candle, candles of certain people here, and then they're going to go up the aisles and they're going to light the candle at the end of each aisle. When your candle's lit, just light the candle of the person next to you and so on. Jesus said he was the light of the world. And he also said that his light can shine into our lives and make us the light of the world. By lighting our candle, we are saying, I want the light of Christ to lighten up my life. I want to be enlightened. I want everything dark in my life to leave and the light of Christ to come in. And as we are lighting our candles, the band are going to lead us in some Christmas carols. And these carols are also prayers. Prayers that reaffirm our faith in Christ. So I'm going to hand over to you guys now.